Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, May 13th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This is the fourth in a series of four episodes on the impact of climate change on our world. We started out with a segment on Earth Day, April 22nd, where we interviewed Bill Nye about science, advocacy and policy change with respect to the climate. Then we went on and talked about melting ice sheets. And now we're going to turn to the effects that climate change might have directly on our species. In April, the United States Global Change Research Program released a new assessment of a growing public health threat. It's called the Impacts of Climate Change on Human Health in the United States, a Scientific Assessment. And a link to it will be posted on our Tumblr page. In order to understand these impacts, specifically with respect to infectious diseases, I spoke to Ben Beard, who's the Associate Director for Climate Change and Chief of the Bacterial Diseases Branch of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC's Division of Vector-Borne Diseases in Fort Collins, Colorado. It's part of the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases, and he's been coordinating the CDC's work in understanding and mitigating the potential impact of climate variability and change on infectious diseases. So the full report includes topics like vector-borne diseases, but also water-related illnesses, food safety, extreme weather, mental health, and so forth. But I really wanted to focus on the vector-borne and other infectious diseases, in part because it also dovetails with another topic that's been in the news very, very much so lately, which is the Zika virus. And we've also talked on this show about mosquitoes and how terrible they are and how we might even now have the tools to completely eradicate them. So I really wanted to talk to Ben and see what his thoughts were in terms of whether we should be doing this kind of eradication and what other ways climate change might make us more vulnerable to infectious diseases. You know, all this month, we've been talking about the word acceleration a lot. The acceleration of ice melting, the you know, the rapid change that's happening. Is that the same verbiage that we're using here in terms of human health impact too? For sure. But one thing that I was really 
unsure of, is even after reading this report, although they, they do address it to a certain extent, is how we're able to tease apart the effect of a more global society, the fact that we're traveling a lot more. So we're you know exposing ourselves to each other much more, and these bugs are able to hitch a ride in so many different ways and therefore spread across the world much more easily than in the past. So how do we know that infectious disease spreading is a function simply of more humans traveling versus some other factors that include things like climate change? That is a really good question. But I imagine the habitats of these bugs, specifically like mosquitoes and ticks, are pretty rapidly changing too. Yeah, but these bugs also have a very short lifespan, which means that they have an opportunity to potentially adapt to some of these changes over the course of many generations. You can imagine that a mosquito, for example, over the course of three years can go through multiple generations where obviously bigger species like us are still in the same generation. I mean, look at millennials. That's like a, what, 14, 15 year generational gap before the next generation comes up. So, you know, we are in some ways less well equipped to adapt to these relatively slow from the perspective of a mosquito changes to the environment. You know, it that report is is quite scary in a lot of ways, because it, in one sense, we're getting outsmarted by ticks and mosquitoes in a lot of ways, like how rapidly they're moving these vector diseases is incredible. And, you know, we have evidence, obviously, people talk about how cockroaches are going to survive the apocalypse. You know, they they have survived unchanged uh, through many different environmental changes and so forth. They've, they've, they've been able to continue to survive. So I'm not worried about the mosquitoes and the ticks and so forth. I'm, I'm definitely more worried about what they are going to do to us. And there was one other aspect of the report that caught my eye, um, which is this indication that, in fact, uh, people who are poor, who come from lower socioeconomic statuses, are more vulnerable. And so I wanted to understand why that might be and what it is that we can do in terms of policy change to protect uh, the more vulnerable individuals of our society. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ben Beard. Hey everybody, this is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. I wanted to remind you of a really easy way you can support the show, and that is by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It takes like a minute to do and it helps us out. You can also follow us on social media, or if you really love the show, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And hey, if you're in the Bay Area and want to see Indre talk about stuff in person, she's going to be at Black Hammer Brewing in San Francisco on Wednesday, May 25th to give a talk as part of the Pint of Science Festival. If you're in the area, you should definitely check it out. You can find more information at pintofscience.us. That's Wednesday, May 25th, Black Hammer Brewing. Go listen to Indre. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Ben Beard. Hi, thank you uh, for having me here today. So here at Inquiring Minds, this is our fourth episode exploring the effects of climate change on our planet. We started on Earth Day, April 22nd, and now we're getting into the nitty gritty details of exactly how climate change might affect our personal health. There's been recently a report that's been released assessing the potential of climate change to affect our health, which I believe you've been involved in. Is that correct? That's correct. So let's start there. What have we observed so far in terms of the effect of climate change on infectious diseases or other aspects of our health? Yeah, so, so um, good question. And um, the way I think of it is that some 
to begin with, some of the things that we expect or anticipated trends associated with climate change are things like longer and warmer summers and uh, shorter and milder winters, and then uh, an increased frequency of severe and unpredictable weather events. So these could be things like storms, heat waves, droughts, uh, El Nino events. And, and then on top of that, there's a lot of regional variation. So what is true perhaps in California is not necessarily true in the Rocky Mountains or in the uh, southeastern U.S. So these types of regional variations are very uh, much, they're very important uh, to keep in mind as well. And so the way I actually like to think about this, the way that climate change can have an impact on infectious diseases, is um, through what I call a One Health lens or paradigm. And One Health is the whole idea, uh, it's, it's that the whole idea that diseases emerge at this intersection between animal health, human health, and the environment. And so a lot of the diseases, as you know, the infectious diseases that we expect to see um, affected by climate change are associated with the environment and they're frequently uh, uh, harbored in wild animals and transmitted by uh, vectors, which are uh, the term we apply to uh, carriers like mosquitoes and ticks and fleas that might bite a wild animal and then um, bite a person. And, and so basically the way we look at this is that changes in the climate and climate lead to changes in the environment, and then this has a result in changing the incidence and distribution of diseases that have the strong environmental linkage. So have we seen any of these changes already happening, or is all of this sort of projected in the future, you know, as the, as the climate gets warmer? Yeah, well, that, that's a, a good question as well there. Uh, to back up a little bit, when we think of climate-sensitive infectious diseases, we're really looking at what we call zoonotic diseases. So these are diseases that can be spread from animals to humans. Vector-borne diseases, these are diseases that are transmitted to humans through uh, vectors or carriers, as I mentioned, you know, like mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. Water-borne diseases, food-borne diseases, and then uh, soil and uh, dust-associated diseases. So um, some of the trends that we've seen um, maybe in, in recent years are, uh, and these are not necessarily linked to climate change, but they're the types of trends that cause us to ask that question. Uh, but these might be the in, interannual trends in West Nile virus epidemics. So we have good years and bad years, and we've had West Nile virus that was introduced a number of years ago, and we've seen uh, outbreaks of that uh, every year. We've had uh, local or what we call autochthonous transmission of uh, uh, dengue and chikungunya, which are some virus, viral infections that are carried by mosquitoes, arboviruses. Uh, we've seen those transmitted in, in Florida and other parts of, of the Americas, uh, northward expansion of eastern equine encephalitis, which is uh, a virus, again, that's transmitted by mosquitoes. We've seen that expand northward in its distribution. We've seen diseases like valley fever or uh, coccidioidomycosis. We've seen this emerge in the southwestern U.S., and, and then, um, finally, I'll mention uh, Lyme disease, which is a very common tick-borne illness. We've seen that increase both its incidence and distribution with a uh, uh, spread northward. Now, all of those things are trends that we've seen, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are, are caused by climate change. And um, maybe we'll get into this later, but there's the question of Zika virus uh, that's been introduced into the uh, uh, New World tropics and what's going on with that. And, and you know, can can talk about that later. 
later if you like. But these are the sorts of trends and observations that kind of beg the question, what is the potential impact of climate change, if any, on, on these uh, infectious diseases? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to talk about mosquitoes in particular um, and, and ticks in a minute, but I, I still want to sort of get a better understanding of, of you know, how these trends are different today or in this past decade or past couple of decades compared with what they might have been like, say, 50 or 100 years ago. And, you know, is, is, is the fact that we're seeing um, this uptick in certain uh, of these, let's say, zoonotic uh, diseases a consequence are, of a better ability to measure them? Or uh, can we find some more direct links between climate change and their um, spread? Yeah, so we actually addressed that in our chapter in the uh, National Climate Assessment Report that you alluded to. And um, there's a table in there that looks specifically at vector-borne diseases, which is my own area of expertise. And there are you know, approximately 13 reported vector-borne diseases. And uh, a reportable disease is, uh, well, diseases reported um, by kind of a determination that's made between CDC in conjunction with the Council of State and Tor Territorial Epidemiologists, CSTE, which are representatives of all the states and territories uh, represented in the U.S. And so uh, the groups get together and de decide that a particular disease needs to be tracked and, or reported. And so once, once that is made official, then whenever a case of that illness occurs, then a physician who sees a patient has to report that case to the local or county health department, who then reports it to the state, who then reports it to CDC. And so um, there are about 13 reportable diseases uh, that CDC tracks every year that are, are vector-borne diseases. And um, one of the tables that we have in the chapter that we wrote looks at the um, occurrence of these diseases from 2004 through 2013, so it's over a 10-year period, and then we look at the snapshot of 2013, and 2013 was the latest year that we had data available for when we finished the chapter. And, um, and in, in almost every case of these 13 diseases, the, um, the number of cases that were reported in 2013 exceeded the, the median over the preceding 10-year period. So with Lyme disease, for example, there were over 36,000 cases reported in uh, 2013. Over that 10-year range, it ranged from 19,000 up to 38,000 with a median of 30,000. And so this was pretty much the same for all the other diseases um, that, that we looked at that are reportable in the U.S. Now, does that prove that climate change is causing this? No, it, it doesn't at all. But I think what it does say is that these diseases or that they're emerging in the U.S., that we're seeing more and more cases of them every year, which, it, which is, is, first of all, it's disconcerting. Secondly, it, it kind of begs the question, what really is, is driving this? And, um, and so the report sort of uses two case studies, Lyme disease and West Nile virus, to look at this in, in greater detail and try to answer the question that you bring up, which really, really is the issue of attribution. How much of this disease emergence can be attributed to climate change and how much is, is attributed to, um, to other factors that are also taking place? Yeah, so I'd love to delve a little bit deeper into Lyme disease because I feel like it's actually not 
very well understood by the general public. And in, in fact, I, I think it's relatively difficult to diagnose. Is, is that true? Or have we gotten better at, at uh, you know, figuring out that it is Lyme disease? Yeah, so with Lyme disease, the issue with diagnosis is that probably there are somewhere around, we usually say around 80% of cases that um, present with, with a rash-type illness. And, and um, when those occur, that the 80% of cases, if you live in an area where Lyme disease is pretty common, then uh, those are, are, are diagnosed clinically by the physician and can be treated. And most of those are treated uh, pretty easily, pretty effectively with a, a fairly short course of antibiotics. What, what happens is that there's another 20% of patients that don't develop the, the uh, telltale rash uh, sign that occurs. And, and when, when that happens, then um, the disease uh, symptoms can be a little bit more general and a little less uh, easy to detect. And so typically those patients will progress to later stages of illness before they're diagnosed. And those later stages can include uh, arthritis. They can include uh, neurologic manifestations of, of a type of illness we call Bell's palsy, and um, and it can also in, involve carditis. That can happen both early and late in illness, and it can be potentially fatal. So uh, the challenge with diagnosis for Lyme disease is um, is with recognizing those early cases, and particularly that 20% of early cases that don't have a rash. The diagnostic test for Lyme disease is an antibody test, or what we call a, ser a serologic test, and that test um, is not going to work very well right when you have been infected. It takes about a month for a, a person to develop an antibody response against Lyme disease. So it's going to be a month before a person would test positive with a laboratory diagnostic test for Lyme disease. And so in that period up until a month, uh, we're really counting on uh, diagnosis being made clinically by the physician who sees the patient. So people will tell you that the diagnostic test for Lyme disease is really bad, but um, a more accurate way of saying this is that the test is not reliable early in an infection because you have to wait until you've had time to make antibodies to be able for the test to, to work. So it's only about 50% um, sensitive, you know, when a person comes in right with a tick bite. But after they've been infected for a while, then that test should should be very reliable. I see. And so let's talk a little bit more about how Lyme disease could, uh, you know, become more more common as a result of climate change. Is it, is it as simple as, you know, look, we have longer summers and there's it's warmer, so there's more time for ticks to, you know, be around and, you know, actually bite someone or are there other factors involved? Yeah, well, um, so first of all, with Lyme disease, let me explain a little bit of the ecology of Lyme disease and epidemiology is, is caused by a spirochete bacteria, and that bacteria is um, carried in small rodents primarily, but also in birds and other animals as well. But small rodents are the key reservoir host for the uh, disease agent. And uh, the deer are actually uh, very important for maintaining the Lyme disease life cycle because the adult ticks pretty much require deer for uh, establishment and completion of their, of their life cycle. And so the, what happens is the immature ticks, the eggs, the eggs hatch and the larval tick emerges and it bites a small rodent, typically a, a paramiscus, a white-footed mouse and, or chipmunk or something like that. 
and then that tick becomes infected, and then it will molt and then emerge as a, a nymphal stage tick. And those nymphal stage ticks are, are very small and very difficult to see. And uh, those will frequently bite people, especially in the northern part of the U.S., the northeastern U.S. and the, uh, and the um, upper Midwest. And, um, and so those ticks will bite, and when they bite, they can transmit Lyme disease. Or if the nymphal tick feeds on another rodent, then um, it, it, it could you know, also become infected if it wasn't already infected, and, and then the adult also uh, would feed then on people or on deer or whatever. So uh, the nipple stage and the adult stage can transmit disease to, to uh, humans. And um, so the way this works, it takes two years for that life cycle of the tick to, um, to be completed. And um, so what we've seen over the years is that this nymphal tick is really important in transmission because it's so tiny, it's not likely to be uh, seen and removed uh, by a person until it's been on for a while and has had a chance to transmit the Lyme disease Borrelia, the, the uh, spirochete that causes the illness. And um, so the link of all that to climate change. Uh, what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen a, a huge expansion in the range of the uh, tick that carries Lyme disease. And um, we've seen that. We published a paper recently looking at this expansion and that basically the tick that carries it is now found in almost 50% of counties in 43 of the, uh, of, the state, of the U.S. states. And this is close to a 45% increase in the numbers of positive counties over the last um, 20 years. And so it kind of begs the question, what's really driving the expansion of this tick? And a lot of that has to do with um, emerging deer populations. The deer populations have grown, and so they've carried the, deer, the, the ticks with them. Uh, it's also related to growth of suburban uh, uh, um, regions in the U.S. So more people are living in areas where deer are present and also the small rodents that carry the bacteria. And so there are a lot of other moving parts, not just climate change, uh, that, that are related to the expansion of Lyme disease. But, but we've seen this huge expansion of Lyme disease, and we have a lot of this data at our, our, our website, which is www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. And if you go to that website, we actually have really nice maps that show uh, how the disease has spread across the U.S. over the last 20 years or so. And it's, and it's very... Um, very market. So the other major, I guess, bug-borne illness that comes to mind for me, or the bug that, that has illnesses, of course, is the mosquito. Um, so is it true that, that that is the other significant bug that we should worry about? And if so, what are the diseases that it carries that are really of interest to people who live in the U.S.? Yeah. So um, mos mosquitoes are responsible for transmitting a no number of important uh, disease agents. So these things are they're like uh, dengue, chikungunya, yellow fever, West Nile virus encephalitis, Zika virus infection, which you've heard a lot about lately. And um, so, um, be, you know, Typically, when people think of climate change, one of the first things we think of is, is uh, temperature and rainfall. And then when people think temperature and rainfall, they think about mosquitoes. If it has been a lot of rain, so it's going to be a really bad mosquito year. So those are sort of clear connections a lot of us make. And, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that with, with a disease like West Nile virus, for example, it's, um, 
is transmitted by mosquitoes in the genus Culax and is amplified in birds. And then humans and mammals are the dead in hosts for West Nile virus and encephalitis. But we could use the year 2012 as, as a case study for West Nile virus. That year there were um, over 5,600 human cases reported in the U.S. So it was, a, it was the biggest outbreak of West Nile virus since about 2003. And um, there were... Um, cases reported from all of the 48 states in the United States, and it was really intense in Texas, where about one-third of all cases came from Texas, which about, with about half of the Texas cases uh, were uh, from the Dallas, Texas area. And um, so I think in general, what we believe about that, and what's actually been studied and modeled a bit, is that this high level of West Nile virus activity in the U.S. in 2012 was really was likely influenced by a mild winter in 2011 and 12, an early spring and a hot summer. And so this long growing season, so you can envision that with a mild winter, mosquitoes survived better during the winter, and then with an early spring, they got started uh, earlier, and at warmer temperatures, mosquitoes can complete their life cycles faster. So you get larger buildups in populations, more likelihood that mosquitoes will bite an infected bird, which are the reservoirs for West Nile virus, and uh, higher infection rates in mosquitoes. And then also at warmer temperatures, the virus can actually replicate at a faster rate in the mosquitoes. So the mosquitoes is more likely to be able to transmit the virus when it bites. And so all of these things sort of work together uh, with the warmer temperatures, a longer summer, earlier spring, uh, to uh, increase the risk of transmission uh, of West Nile virus to humans. And that was certainly what we, what we saw the summer of 2012 with uh, the West Nile virus outbreak. And now, of course, we have the Zika virus, which is pretty scary uh, for, for a lot of us. And there are some people who are talking about strategies to just completely eradicate all mosquitoes. What do you think about those strategies? Is that something that we should be looking for if we can't halt the effect of global warming? Well, I think we certainly need more effective methods for controlling mosquitoes. There, um, mosquitoes are, especially the mosquitoes that transmit Zika virus, which is the same as Aedes aegypti or Aedes albopictus. Both of those are present here in the United States. Aedes aegypti is the most important uh, vector mosquito, and it's very common throughout the tropics in the areas where the Zika uh, virus outbreak is, is, is ongoing. But these mosquitoes are resistant to a number of the insecticides that are used. And so we really need uh, new classes of insecticides uh, that, are, that are more effective to control the mosquito. And it's, it's uh, very much a, a challenge right now. I mean, do you think as we, you know, as, as this becomes a, a bigger issue, um, that people are going to have to just protect themselves more and more personally in terms of, you know, wearing either mosquito netting or sprays and things like that? Well, I think certainly having um, a, a much better personal um, attention, giving much much more personal attention to using repellents and screens and protecting yourself against the bites of mosquitoes will be really important. But, but you know, it's, it's really interesting with Zika because we often, um, the fact that we've had this big outbreak and it's going on right now, uh, is a lot of people have wondered about climate change and whether or not climate change is, has been involved in this at all. And what we, what we know about this is that warmer temperatures, the mosquitoes complete their development from egg to adult more quickly. And so this leads to larger populations, much like the situation with West Nile virus, even though it's a different group of mosquitoes that carry, carry Zika. 
And in the same way with bisonal at warmer temperatures, virus particles replicate faster in the mosquito, leading to uh, the greater likelihood of trans uh, transmission. But um, some of the other things, though, that, that are more, more um, difficult to connect the dots with um, climate change and, say, the emergence of disease like Zika is the fact that this mosquito that transmits Zika has been here in the U.S. for many, many years. It was actually introduced in the slave trade uh, you know, many years ago uh, from Africa and that it was uh, responsible for a number of outbreaks of diseases, you know, all the way back to the 1700s, uh, of yellow fever and dengue fever and things like that. So we've had this mosquito, we've had diseases like Zika in the United States in the past. And so you really have to look at these other critical factors such as global trade, uh, tra global travel, so this is like the frequency and range and movement of infected individuals, uh, how the, they're moving, uh, population growth and overcrowding in a lot of the uh, areas, um, poverty, you know, in places like um, some of the slums in Brazil and uh, where we've seen uh, worst outbreaks of Zika virus. And, and then also this sort of large group of susceptible uh, people who've never been exposed to this virus. So all those things kind of figure into um, the, the issue of why we, we're seeing Zika right now. And so there's no direct evidence that climate change has an impact on Zika. And then I think one other question that people often bring, well, what about ENSO, which is the El Nino uh, Southern Oscillation events? And this is a cycle of warming uh, uh, sea surface temperatures. You know, so you have uh, sea surface temperatures. Uh, El Nino uh, was actually uh, uh, means the child, and it was based on observations around the tropical Pacific regions in South America that around Christmas time you frequently saw uh, the impacts of this warming surface temperature and, and uh, greater amounts of rainfall and, and unpredictable weather patterns and things like that. So every year, every time there's a strong inso, it can have an impact on certain diseases uh, that we see. And so it, it kind of begs the question, what's the link between climate change and El Nino? And uh, some people have suggested that, um, that, that, that they're one and the same, but actually El Nino is not caused by climate change, but it can be intensified by climate change. So it can, these El Nino events occur every few, few years. And so we have been in a really strong El Nino event the, over the last year, and it has had a significant impact on weather patterns. So, you know, that's quite possible that that has played into the Zika uh, virus uh, emergence here in the uh, Americas. But it's less clear how that's related to climate change and, and all. So we've got a lot of research to do to be able to connect those dots more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, that was, you know, that was something that I was wondering about in terms of, you know, how can you attribute the spread of these kinds of diseases to something like climate change versus the increase in global travel and, and, and that kind of spread. But in the report, there's also a mention that in particular, low income communities seem to be vulnerable to a lot of these effects. And I wanted to, you know, just talk about that a little bit. Why is it that low income communities seem to be disproportionately affected? Yeah, and um, that is something that I think is really in the forefront of the minds of, of all of us who work in uh, climate change and emerging infectious diseases. And um, I think generally speaking, um, people who live in impoverished conditions are, are less capable 
of, of affording things that very simple types of modern conveniences uh, that, that can really improve their, uh, their um, exposure risk to uh, infectious diseases, particularly vector-borne diseases. So the types of things we're thinking about are housing, um, you know, having access to air conditioning and, and having access to be able to buy household sprays, you know, repellents, insecticides, uh, having access to good health care so that if a family member gets sick, you know, they can go in and see a doctor and uh, they can get the medication that, that they need, which improves their health outcome, but it also reduces the likelihood of someone else in the household getting sick by the same illness. So I think, um, and then, then also with poverty, uh, there's also the issues of, of nutrition and under poor um, health, you know, it's related with bad nutrition. And so if you have poor health and poor nutrition, then you, you probably have a higher likelihood of um, becoming more sick by one of these infectious diseases. And so I think a lot of us feel that this whole thing of climate change and emerging diseases, that it really will be born uh, the, the brunt of this by um, by uh, more the poor, the poor, more tropical regions of the world that, that just don't have the economic resources, public health infrastructure, things like this to protect themselves that, that we have here in the U.S. So that's very much a, a concern to us. And to that point, we know that water is a precious and expensive resource. And another chapter of the report talks about how waterborne diseases are you know, expected to rise. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of, uh, of the assessment? Yeah, well, let me just say that the contents of the, of the uh, report in general, uh, that they look at really uh, the issues of uh, temperature, uh, temperature-related deaths and illness, air quality impacts, extreme events, vector-borne diseases, waterborne illnesses, uh, food safety, nutrition, and distribution, and um, mental health and well-being. So that's really the focus. Now, my role in this really, um, other than being on the, the um, steering committee for the larger document, um, I really specialize in vector-borne diseases. But I'll say a couple of things really um, about waterborne disease, just a, a few things, is that, you know, one of the concerns we have is with extreme weather events, uh, flooding, storms, and things like that, you know, it, um, it has the potential of, of contaminating water supplies with, with sewage. And so, um, which then exposes people potential to, potentially to a number of, uh, of waterborne disease agents. So this is certainly a concern. And I think there's also the concern of some um, particularly, um, well, very low incident diseases that, like, uh, there's one called primary amoebic meningoencephalitis, and this is caused by free-living amoeba that um, typically, historically, has been found in, in shallow ponds and, and lakes in the southern U.S., and it's um, in, in, in these cases are very rare, fortunately, but when they do occur, they're, they're frequently almost always fatal. And, um, and it's been really interesting that in the last five to ten years, we've seen an increasing number of cases at, uh, in more northern lo locations in the U.S., even as, as far north as Minnesota. And so this is very concerning to us. Is this a result of climate change 
or is it just that they're uh, people, is it just coincidence, you know, because there have just not been many of these cases at all, certainly not a large enough numbers to do statistical analyses of this. And there's not been uh, research that's been done to really establish uh, how the free-living free living stage of this amoeba, because it lives, it's a free-living amoeba in these lakes and streams, but then it can enter into a human, usually through nasal passages and things like that when they're swimming. But we really don't know how uh, the prevalence of the free-living form of the amoeba has changed over time, and if that's at all related to climate change. So those are just a couple of examples of what we think about with waterborne illnesses uh, and, and how they could be related to climate change. And again, it just sort of looks for the need uh, for, um, for better research, particularly in the case of the, the amoebic, uh, primary amoebic meningoencephalitis. So you live in Colorado and probably spend a lot of time outdoors, as I imagine most Colorado residents do. Um, is there anything that you are going to change in terms of your personal habits, knowing that there might be an increase in vector-borne diseases, even in your local area? Yeah, well, here in um, Colorado, uh, we have a West Nile virus almost every year. In fact, my daughter had it a couple of summers ago. And um, fortunately for her, it was mild, and she had a rash and didn't feel very well, and, and uh, that was about the limit of it. So we were really uh, fortunate with that. But um, it emphasizes the importance of wearing repellents, especially as you get into the later part of the summer, um, August, particularly July and August, when the mosquito populations are up and when the uh, risk of... Um, of West Nile virus transmission increases. And I think it also, though, emphasizes the importance of a strong local public health re response so that you have, um, you know, local assessment of, of uh, mosquito populations to determine uh, whether or not they're they're beginning to be positive, so you know when uh, when would be best to spray for mosquitoes. All of those things are good, but they're not so much personal responsibilities more as it's getting into the area of, uh, of uh, local government responsibilities. Well, I just wanted to follow up on the repellent issue. So, you know, as a parent of a small child, I worry about spraying toxins <laughs> onto him, you know, even if potentially it could prevent him from, you know, getting a disease. It just it just feels weird to spray bug spray on a two year old, even though I, I, I know that that's probably the right thing to do. So I sometimes worry that parents could get sucked into, you know, being sold some kind of like, quote unquote, natural bug spray that actually isn't that effective. So can you give any advice to those of us who are concerned about, you know, just the amount of, you know, chemicals that we're not super familiar with, uh, that we have to use in order to repel these insects? Yeah, I would just say use these products according to their label. And I think there's um, a tendency in the U.S. that if a little bit works okay, then a whole lot works a lot better. And, um, and I think that we have to be really careful. The um, EPA is now putting a logo or a little um, uh, icon on repellents that indicate what they've been, what they're recommended to use for, uh, what they are effective against, what, whether it's ticks or mosquitoes or biting flies or whatever, and then uh, what amounts have been shown through very careful studies to be safe. 
And so, for example, with DEET, we never recommend using more than about 25% or so. And uh, there's other compounds like permethrin that can be put. It's not recommended to use that on your skin, but you can put that on clothing. And uh, you can buy types of clothing that have actually been treated with permethrin. And those are good in some cases for up to, I think, 70 uh, washes in the washing machine. And so those are possibilities. Uh, one promising thing here at CDC, we, um, we just developed um, a, a new natural product insecticide that we uh, have a licensing agreement with uh, a company called Evolva. And they are in the process of trying to get this uh, natural product repellent insecticide uh, registered with EPA for use. And hopefully in the next year or, or two, it will be available to consumers. But it's uh, derived from Alaskan uh, yellow cedars and, uh, and also from citrus peel, and it's a food-grade product per uh, FDA, so it's actually used in flavors and fragrances, and it's been used in the cosmetic industry, and so um, we hope that as a natural product, it will be available soon, and it will kind of get, get around some of the aversion that, that, that some people may have to use uh, to using synthetic repellents or insecticides. Great. Well, I will look out for that at the uh, drugstore shelves. Yes, stay tuned. So, Ben Beard, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I enjoyed it. So, are you going to buy a lot of mosquito repellent this summer? I do. So, I'm slightly allergic to this protein uh, in mosquito bites. So, I swell. So, I use the gnarliest, nastiest stuff that I can find. Like, I w- you can, I'm the guy that's wearing, like, long sleeves, in every sort of mosquito environment possible. Are you are you you also fall prey to that fallacy of more is better? So like do you just slather on tons of DEET? No, no. For me it's all about reapplying. Same rules apply to sunscreen as it does with DEET. But I definitely use DEET. I don't use the natural stuff because the impacts to my health and to that of my family is greater with the bite than it is in terms of the toxic you know, chemical that I'm using on myself. And look, I, that was one thing that I wanted to kind of push back on him a little bit is a sense that natural is safer. I mean, that's obviously not the case. A lot of very natural things are very toxic to human beings. But I think what he was saying is that this is like a food grade product. And that is a different categorization. So I think we need to be careful when we talk about, you know, I wish we could just throw away the natural label and just call it food grade. That, you know, l- that rather word than doesn't natural. really mean anything anyway. I know, but it's still, you know, it sells things. So that, that makes me sad. I feel like we, we should have a, a different way of, of talking about these products. But I'm excited about the potential for food grade uh, products that maybe, and, you know, because the other thing is, is that it's, it's kind of smelly, the DEET, but like that smelling like cedar and citrus, like that sounds like a Joe Malone cologne. <laughs> I, I've tried a lot of weird products to to ward off mosquitoes, even a CO2 generator that masks your sort of scent for, um, from mosquitoes, quote unquote. Uh, it does not work real well, but I, like there's all sorts of products out there. But it brings up the concept that you led off the show with is that I'm able to purchase some of these preventative products. I'm able to invest in uh, preventative uh, visits to to the hospital for diagnosis for something like Lyme disease, which is difficult to diagnose. You can live in air conditioning and have screens. So it's not like you're stuck living outside. So I'm really stuck with the idea of how much more this affects disadvantaged folks than it does those those that are affluent. I mean, that seems to be a common issue 
in any climate change discussion, right? I mean, certainly individuals who are better off will be able to mitigate some of the effects, uh, you know, more so than even when we talk about in terms of just globally, poorer countries are going to have a harder time when their infrastructure gets blasted with the effects of climate change. I mean, a lot of the study is focused on a, a U.S.-centric um, population. So when you see the graphs of how quickly Lyme disease is spreading and how quickly ticks are spreading... That that applies just as much to a rich Western nation, quote unquote, uh, as much to a, a third world nation, because we're going to see that disproportionate effect in the U.S. alone, which is a rich Western nation. But even if you take Lyme disease on its own, right, 80 percent of people with Lyme disease present with a characteristic rash. In the U.S., those individuals go to their doctor's office, get the right medication, and all of a sudden they're not affected anymore by the disease. If they have health care. If they have health care, yes. Thanks, Obama. Absolutely right, right. But you go to a different country and that same vector-borne disease is going to have a more devastating effect because those individuals don't have access to care. And so the disease is going to, you know, be further along by the time they're maybe, if any, ever treated. The the other scary part is something else you brought up. Like, these are short-lived species and the viruses are mutating rapidly therein. A lot of the viruses we've been talking about, you know, Zika, Dengue, others, we've known about for a long period of time. There's probably a lot of stuff out there that we don't know, haven't even scratched the surface with that we don't know about. For sure. I mean, that that's definitely scary. And I also feel like, you know, when I was a kid, we would put on mosquito repellent because it was annoying to get an itchy mosquito bite, but I never thought of it as potentially life threatening, you know, now. And then again, I don't, I don't know whether Zika is going to actually reach the U S or, you know, if you could just avoid Brazil and therefore avoid, or some of these other countries and just avoid exposure. And even if you do get Zika virus, I don't know how many of those patients actually develop um, microcephaly and in sort of the case of pregnant women. I don't think it's a one-to-one Thing. I think it's, you know, there is a relationship there, but it's not a guarantee. And yet that is, seems like a completely preventable thing, but only if you kind of make some pretty, like you have to avoid all mosquito bites. It's not like you can just have fewer mosquito bites. I mean, I guess maybe you mitigate your risk a little bit, but it just takes one mosquito bite for you to get that disease. Discussions like this really changed my perspective on climate change as a whole. Sea level rise feels impersonal in some ways. I know it's going to affect people at the coast and I live at the coast, but this is about my own personal livelihood. It isn't about society writ large. This is about me as an individual. So can I just play devil's advocate for like two seconds as we're wrapping up this month-long segment on climate change? Yeah, please. So in the assessment report, they do talk about the effects of climate change on mental health. And particularly when you have these bigger climate variability scenarios, you can have a lot of stress in your life. You know, if you're a farmer, for example, and you can't predict what the weather is going to be like from one season to the next, you don't know what you're going to be planting. You know, this is really stressful for you. But aren't we also going to have a lot nicer, warmer, sunny days? Are we going to, you know, is it is it is the a lot of the depression that comes with, you know, long, cold winters, is that going to go away? There's actually a report that came out a few weeks ago when we started this month-long conversations about how the weather is nicer, especially in winters in, you know, places like the East Coast of the United States, is mitigating how much interest and enthusiasm people have for tackling climate change issues because it is nicer. And especially if you live in Canada, in certain places in Canada, in certain fridges places, now we might have um, a longer summer period. Yeah, there's some definite benefits to climate change. Like, let's not 
let's not you know say it's all bad but that's not good <laughs> either <laughs> i mean we just need to figure out how to you know turn that frown upside down and you know make the really awful problems of climate change somehow figure out how to make them opportunities i think Indre is going on vacation in her, in the Arctic on her Arctic cruise that she couldn't go on before. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. That is the end of our month-long segment on climate change and the Earth. Of course, we'll continue to cover climate change as issues come up, uh, but we wanted to dedicate some real Inquiring Minds time to this issue. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Brendan Ryan, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, photos of you enjoying those hot days or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chia. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.